And most people overeat calories because they think fatigue is a sign of hunger, and it's not. Fatigue is the sign of detoxification from a poor diet. This is why people can't lose weight, because they eat for energy to keep their energy up. Because when their body is toxic or doesn't have enough nutrients in a high level of metabolic waste like reactive oxygen species and advanced glycation end products, as they build up more metabolic waste, those elements are, you could say, repaired or removed in the non-digesting state when you finish digesting food. And the minute a person finishes digesting, they start to feel fatigue. So they got to eat again to get back into the digestive cycle again to stop the healing of the detox. So this is important to recognize that you shouldn't be eating in response to fatigue and that fatigue will go away. And that's why you have to eat so healthfully and put nutrients in the body so you don't feel fatigue or detox between meals, driving you to overeat. And that when you switch your diet from one that's not as healthy to one that's significantly healthier, you might temporarily feel worse for two to four days. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. Many of you have just returned from holiday, from travel, or perhaps you're about to embark on your last trek of 2022 or the first one of 2023. All of our New Year's resolutions abound. This is a period of rest, reflection, family, and perhaps an overindulgence or two. It's also a time of year when sickness rears its ugly head and we're more concerned for our immune systems, something for which we should probably be concerned year-round. To open this discussion in our quest to develop super immune systems, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Joel Furman. Dr. Furman is a medical doctor, board-certified in family medicine. He's a seven-time New York Times best-selling author and internationally recognized expert on nutrition and natural healing. Dr. Foreman specializes in preventing and reversing diseases through nutritional methods, and he shares his learnings broadly through his writing, speaking engagements, and guest appearances on shows like this one. He wrote the book, Super Immunity, The Essential Nutrition Guide for Boosting Your Body's Defenses so that you can live longer, stronger, and disease-free. Dr. Joel Furman, welcome to the show. Hi, excited to be here. It's so great to have you. I have been a fan of your work for some time and piecing through this particular book because I wanted to interview you specifically about the immune health that people build throughout the year, not just in the holidays. I didn't realize at the time I started that this was written back in 2011, but it feels so prescient today. The reality is every bit (laughs) of this book could support people in a time like this. There's actually this little byline in the bottom, no shots, no drugs, no sick days. Now, I think taking a personal day now and then is is a healthy thing, but I'd love to know, just as we get started, what inspired you to write this book back in 2011 and ultimately what you're working on today? Well, even the World Health Organization back then predicted a spike and recorded a tremendous growth in people suffering from and dying from infectious-related ailments which has continued today. And we're talking about even ailments that other than COVID, the amount of infections have climbed and also infectious-related deaths and also other than COVID, infectious-related deaths other than COVID. 
from many different reasons. One is the overuse of antibiotics, making for more super bacterial strains. Another is the deteriorating nutrition of our population, the growing waistlines and fat cells, suppression on immunity, and how overweight people have abnormal immune systems. And what I'm saying right now is there's no such thing as a healthy, overweight person. That's a myth. Because as you get heavier and eat excess calories and foods that are low in nutrients, you dilute the density of the nutrient levels in your cells. And you also suppress immune function, natural killer T cells, all the white blood. You create chronic inflammation in the body. Fat cells spew out lipokines, cytokines, and reactive oxygen species, which keeps your immune system hyperactivated all the time. So when you're then exposed to a microbe, then you can react because it's like keeping the flashlight turned on all the time. It doesn't work very well when you really need it. But the other thing I'm saying is that Americans, much of the modern world, are ubiquitously deficient in micronutrients, particularly the antioxidants and phytochemicals found in colorful plant foods. And the intraepithelial lymphocytes that build up on the wall of our digestive tract behind the villi and the small intestines are the defenders of the gates of the castle, you could say. And those intraepithelial lymphocytes have robust protective function against toxins, microbes, viruses, mold, and they get atrophied in response to the processed foods that people eat. And they grow and get healthy in response to a high intake of green vegetables. We are a green vegetable dependent animal like the other primates. And our immune system doesn't function normally if you don't eat a lot of greens in your diet. I'm suggesting that Yes, I predicted, as you can see, way before COVID, that as these new infections emerge themselves in modern life, in the modern world, and will happen another five years or 10 years from now, another new one, infection that the human body is not used to will emerge and kill another batch of people. And we can't just suddenly build great immune system by taking a supplement or something right away or taking a drug or an antiviral. We have to have good immune function that takes months or even years to build through excellent nutrition. So I wanted to people to control of their health destiny and also let them know that this explosion of cancer-related deaths doesn't have to happen and that cancer is a relatively new phenomenon in human history and it doesn't have to happen to you, us, or we can arm our body against both viral infections, bacterial illnesses, and cancer. It's not inevitable. We're not helpless. It's not just attacking us. It's not predominantly genetic. And we can talk about that, how we can win the war on cancer predominantly through nutritional excellence and removing environmental toxicity and chemicals in our environment. Of course, cancer has a lot to do with exposure to asbestos, smoke, toxins, chemicals, but also our body's ability to remove toxins and the body's ability to eliminate them before they can become damaged. The tissues are totally dependent on the nutritional state of the host. Well, you mention in your book that Americans also overconsume protein. Much of the Western world overconsumes protein in the tune of about 100 grams of protein per day. In fact, most protein shakes that bodybuilders and other athletic-leaning people will consume start around 20 to 30 grams of protein in a single serving that you drink. Now, those products are often also ameliorated with all sorts of damaging to our systems, But the argument you're making is that when we go to animal proteins first for all of these things, that we actually have worsening health outcomes. We stimulate something called IGF-1. Can you talk a bit about that and why we should be thinking about our diets a little bit differently, specifically as it relates to building a strong immune system? Absolutely. Well, first, let me just say that as a starting point, if you would ask me what was the most profound 
and important evidence from the scientific literature and nutrition over the last five or 10 years, it would be all the studies that corroborate each other that show that as animal protein increases in the diet as a percent of total calories, so does premature death in proportion. And we're talking about increasing risk of both heart attacks and strokes and also cancer deaths. That animal protein is related to early and premature death is defined as people dying before the age of 70. And later life deaths are people defined after the age of 90, let's say. So we're talking here about the combination that protein regulates lifespan through various mechanisms. One is IGF-1, another is TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, is a leading cause of endothelial inflammation from bacteria in the gut that grow in response to high animal protein diets. And what I'm saying, not just talking about animal protein, we're talking about plant proteins. The studies show that as plant proteins increase in the diet, we see more later life deaths and longer lifespan. And intake of plant proteins are linked to being a healthy centenarian or pushing the envelope of human longevity. So it's not that protein doesn't matter. It does matter. And having adequate protein does matter. But we're trying to achieve more adequate protein from plants as opposed to protein from animal products, which says to us, we want to reduce animal product and increase plant protein sources. And the foods that are primary sources of plant protein are, of course, green vegetables, beans, legumes, and nuts and seeds. And those are the foods, the green vegetables, beans, and nuts and seeds that are the high plant protein foods show the close association with extending human lifespan in our species. I always make the joke and I say, if you don't like green vegetables, you better live close to a hospital because we're a green vegetable dependent animal. Our immune system is dependent on it. Our, the NRF2 transcription proteins are predominantly fueled by antioxidants, but particularly by the isothiocyanides, the ITCs in green vegetables, that's green cruciferous vegetables, but also the sulfoquinivose from lettuce fuels the growth of the healthiest type of gram-positive bacteria in the gut, which sets the stage for the body's natural immune function. I'm saying right now that simple foods that people don't even think of as being superfoods, like green lettuces and cruciferous vegetables mixed together in a salad, have incredible power to raise human immune function and to establish what scientists call gene silencing. Gene silencing means the body has the ability to recognize abnormal gene sequences, either inherited or acquired, and make silence them so they don't express and cause damage if the intake of green vegetables and isothiocyanates in the diet is sufficient. You can't, so we're saying here that even genetic defects like the BRCA1 gene and the GSTP1 gene that increases a woman's risk of breast cancer are silenced and are, don't create increased risk of cancer in people that have adequate green vegetable consumption. Now, you also mention in the book that people sometimes when they hear all this information, when they start to buy in and say, okay, well, I'm going to make a shift in how I consume foods. I might not have thought before of my spinach as being a protein source. I would have thought it was just cellulose and some other micronutrients, but understanding that it too has proteins in it because of course it does. Now, make the shift. Sweetest animals, obviously, who are high utilizers of protein, like elephants and... They all eat vegetables. You know, <laughs> giraffes and all kinds of... use gorillas, they all get the protein from green vegetables, which are mostly protein, not carbohydrate or fat. Their greens are high-protein foods, actually. So it's like we've been taught something that's just simply not true. 
But you mention in the book that often people will make the shift and they'll do so somewhat dramatically, like, okay, well, I'm just going to cold turkey. I'm going to stop eating chicken. I'm no longer going to eat fish. And they might feel worse for a little bit. And so they give up and they go back to their old ways and their old diet and they're eating the bagels and the lox and the meats that they might have eaten going through the drive-thru or whatever. And they're right back in their old patterns. So can you talk about why that happens And if there's any ways that we can approach this so that we might lessen the impact and improve our chances of success, if we're trending towards vegan or mostly vegetarian and really following the research and what it has to say about health and longevity. Absolutely. The point you're bringing up right now is crucially important for people to recognize. And that is that when you're smoking cigarettes, three packs a day, and you stop smoking cigarettes, you don't feel better when you stop smoking. You feel worse when you stop smoking because the body regains the ability to remove the buildup of noxious agents that are going to kill you from the cigarette smoke. Often smokers develop a cough that's chronic for a while when they quit, right? Right. And the body sets into motion a series of events to try to heal and reconstitute damaged tissue from smoking. When you're healing damage, your body is mobilizing toxins and you're feeling lousy and even fatigued. And when you stop heroin or you stop any drug or stop being an alcoholic, or when you stop eating fast food or overdoing protein poisoning, you get these nitrogenous wastes that build up in the body and age you start to be eliminated. We're talking about urea, ammonia, uric acid. We're talking about excess nitrogen. It becomes toxic. And people who think they're hypoglycemic, they don't feel well when they detox from excess nitrogens. They have to keep the excess, the high protein food coming in. They become addicted to high protein just because they feel worse when they stopping. It means it shows the damaging effects of something that's toxic. You don't feel sick when you stop broccoli. You feel only sick when you stop doing something that's harmful or self-destructive, so you temporarily feel bad. The good news is those feeling of increased fatigue or agitation or even mild headaches only last for three or four days. By day five or six, it's gone. But if you're going to see, go on day two or three or four, that you're not feeling better, well, it's good you're feeling worse because feeling worse means you're getting better, and feeling better means you're getting worse. In other words, in the short run, in the long run, you're going to feel great in eating healthfully, but immediately you temporarily feel worse. Anything that makes you, that changes symptoms very rapidly is usually toxic. We learned that in medical school, that drugs are poisons, they're toxic. That's why we're trying to control their use with prescriptions, even though doctors don't, they overprescribe. But drugs work by blocking or interfering or poisoning natural body actions. So I can give you a natural herb that can speed up your heart or slow it down or not put you to sleep or wake you up or make you urinate more or make you urinate less or kill an infection. But the efficacy is proportional to its toxicity. For example, I can give you a drug to stop your headaches, like Eskit, Wygain, Vanquish, Furanol, which whose active ingredients are, of course, narcotics, barbiturates, and caffeine, because they push the poisons back in, making you feel better, which then sets the stage for a chronic headache syndrome from taking these drugs. We're saying the toxins coming out is the repair, is the healing, that feeling worse is the healing. And most people overeat calories because they think fatigue is a sign of hunger. And it's not. Fatigue is the sign of detoxification from a poor diet. This is why people can't lose weight, because they eat for energy to keep their energy up. Because when their body is toxic or doesn't have enough nutrients in a high level of metabolic waste, like reactive oxygen species and advanced glycation end products, as they build up more metabolic wastes, those elements are, you could say, repaired or removed in the non-digesting state when you finish digesting food. And the minute a person finishes digesting, they start to feel fatigue. So they got to eat again to get back into the digestive cycle again to stop the healing of the detox. So this is important to recognize that you shouldn't be eating in response to fatigue. 
and that fatigue will go away. And that's why you have to eat so healthfully and put nutrients in the body so you don't feel fatigue or detox between meals, driving you to overeat. And that when you switch your diet from one that's not as healthy to one that's significantly healthier, you might temporarily feel worse for two to four days. Now, you coined a term, nutritarian, which I think is my new favorite health-related word. So I wanted you to have the opportunity to explain the concept. I think people will automatically get it, but I just love it. And I feel like you should define it for us. Yeah, because what's a good word for describing a diet that's very healthful, super healthy diet? And you can't define it by whether you're plant vegan or whether you're eating animal product. Nothing, high carbohydrate, low fat. The best way to describe a very healthy diet is nutritarian. It has to do with achieving a high level of nutrient density in your diet to therefore achieve a high nutrient density in your body's tissues. We have to have adequate nutrients in the body's tissues. And we could measure that. We can measure nutrients in the body's tissues by like a skin carotenoid scanner to maybe give you an idea of your skin carotenoid concentration. And we find that as people eat diets that are richer in nutrients, their body's tissues become richer in nutrients. And as people lose weight, their body's going to increase the nutrient density of your tissues because rather than fat cells sequestering nutrients and diluting the nutrient load in your body, you have the same nutrients in a smaller vat of tissue. So the combination of getting to a favorable weight and eating healthier increases the nutrient density of our tissues. And I'm saying here very specifically is that diets of all description fail and people aren't comfortably eating less calories so that they're driven to overeat because their nutrient density of their diet isn't adequate. So even though we're striving for a diet with a good nutrient bang per caloric buck, I'm also saying that striving for a high nutrient bang per caloric buck makes you satisfied with the right amount of calories. And you can therefore eat instinctually. You can eat the amount of calories you desire, but the amount of calories you now desire are not excess anymore. It's what the body requires and no more. If you're requiring excess calories, then you're eating improperly because you're wanting more calories and the food is very addicting. And I'm saying people aren't even responsible for their being overweight. We have a toxic food environment which turns them into food addicts because we're eating the wrong foods. When you eat the right foods, then you would gravitate towards a favorable weight and not really want to eat excessive calories. So a nutritarian is a person, by the way, who's eating healthfully and at their ideal weight, or they're eating healthfully and moving in the direction towards their ideal weight every single week. If they're remaining overweight or regaining weight, then they're not on a nutritarian diet because their diet still needs a lot of tweaking, you could say, to achieve good health. So paging through the book, you do also include some actual recipes, everything from salad dressings to encourage people to eat more vegetables in their raw state. But you also make comments about what you would need to consume in a day to get to 50 grams of protein. And it really wasn't that much in my mind. A few cups of vegetables, some fruits, making sure you get a cup or so of beans in your meal for the day or meals for the day. And that could be kidney beans you throw on your salad or lima beans later or something in a soup. I mean, I just would like for you to talk about this so people get an understanding of what you might consume in a day while on this. Well, as you may know, I have this acronym G-BOMBS, G-BOMBS, G-B-O-M-B-S. And that just stands for the foods with the most scientific evidence for powerful anti-cancer effect and promoting human longevity. And I'm saying here that the same foods that protect against cancer 
also fight off infection-related deaths at the same time. There's not one diet to prevent cancer and another diet to prevent long-term COVID or death from COVID or harm from COVID or harm from pneumonia or harm from flu. And it's the same dietary elements, foods and supplements, the same immune-boosting substances have the effect to fight both. So we're talking here about the G-bomb stands for greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds. Berries can include things like cherries and pomegranate and loquats and kumquats and other low-sugar fruits, but predominantly berries. And seeds, very critical to eat seeds, like flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, as a source of immune-boosting foods. They have dramatic protection against cancer and, again, and they, um, beneficial effects. And mushrooms have tremendous power on improving immune function and gut function. Now they're very low in calories, too. Yeah, very low in calories. That's right. These foods are, people can eat larger amounts of food and enjoy what they're eating, lose weight without eating thimble-sized portions of food. But I want to say this one sentence to have people write it down and memorize it. It's what you just said about raw vegetables. I want to repeat that so people can write this down. Raw vegetables have the most consistent and powerful association with the reduction of cancers of all types. So I'm going to say that one more time so they can write that down, put it on the refrigerator. The mantra is the salad is the main dish. That means at least once a day, eat a big salad in a nine-inch bowl, not a six-inch soup bowl and put in both lettuce and cruciferous greens and onion and scallion in there raw, red onion and chopped scallion, and use a dressing made from nuts and seeds, be tomato sauce and nuts and seeds, or all kinds of different orange with cashews and toasted sesame seeds and blood orange vinegar and lemon, all different dressings that are made from nuts and seeds, because nuts and seeds facilitate the absorption of the anti-cancer compounds in their own right. They're very lifespan enhancing by themselves. But anyway, let me say that sentence one more time is that Raw vegetables have the most consistent and powerful association with reduction of cancers of all types. Something else there that I want to touch on, because I think people automatically think when they're going to eat salads, they're going to use a salad dressing. And one of the things I often speak out against is the overconsumption of salad dressing, because it's a lot of omega-6, generally speaking. You go to the grocery store and it might say olive oil or avocado oil on it, but it's generally speaking got canola oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, or one of the other highly processed omega-6 oils that increases your inflammation levels and makes it harder to get to that omega-3 to omega-6 balance. You actually have a food pyramid in this book too, which puts oils up in the very top where you're actually telling people to consume a lot less oil. Can you talk about that? Yes. Number one, I'm saying that the consumption of raw nuts and seeds is probably the most proven methodology in the history of nutritional science to lower heart attack rate, cancer rate, and extend human lifespan to replace oils with whole nuts and seeds. Because we give something more credence as some kind of theory, more credence when there's numerous studies from around the world with different researchers that all show the same findings with large numbers of people looking at hard endpoints. The hard endpoints they looked at here were death, age of death, death rates, you know, that's a hard endpoint as paired to like a soft endpoint might be your cholesterol went down, your triglycerides improved, but a hard endpoint was how long you live. Cause like smoking cigarettes can make you lose weight and improve your triglycerides. But of course the smoking cigarettes can cause premature death. Taking statins may lower your cholesterol, but they may increase the risk of diabetic-related deaths. In other words, we have to look at hard endpoint studies. The point I'm making right now is that nuts and seeds consumption show a 40% reduction in cardiovascular death, which is unheard of from any intervention. Take, so the oils also are 100% bioavailable, and they're an appetite stimulant because so many calories rush into the bloodstream so rapidly, they stimulate the apostat in the central nervous system, the hypothalamus, and the dopamine centers in the brain 
are stimulants make you more dopamine insensitive, making you want to eat more calories. So oils are an appetite stimulant. They're concentrated calories. They're linked to overweight gain. Whereas nuts and seeds, the fats are absorbed more slowly. The body can preferentially burn them for energy. They have more effects at ratcheting down the appetite. And their calories are not all biologically accessible. The calories are lost in trying to digest them. And they also attract fat in the gut. And they attract LDL cholesterol to be sucked out of the the bloodstream into the gut for elimination in the stool, lowering cholesterol and particularly oxidized LDL. So we're talking here about using the judicious use of nuts and seeds and removing oils from the diet, where I'll make like a Thai curry sauce by using nuts and seeds with lemongrass and turmeric and curry and make, or a, making a delicious salad dressing I just mentioned with a navel orange with blood orange vinegar and lemon and cashew nuts and toasted sesame seeds blended together or making an almond dressing with almonds and sunflower seeds blended with a rich tomato sauce with sun-dried tomato and roasted garlic and some black fig vinegar in there or balsam. Or, in other words, we're making delicious dressings. And I'm saying the inclusion of nuts and seeds with the vegetable-based meal facilitates the absorption of the anti-cancer nutrients in the meal 20 to 50 times as much as eating a salad without a dressing. So yes, one of the hallmarks, or you could say one of the most important features of a nutritarian diet is the fat comes from nuts and seeds rather than from animal fats and oils. The American diet, most of the Western world, gets their fat from animal products and oils. And a nutritarian gets their fats from nuts and seeds and avocados, not the avocado oil, it's the avocado, not the walnut oil, it's the walnut, not the pecan, not the pistachio oil, it's the pistachio nut. And we're also paying attention to, as you said, to the omega-3, omega-6 ratio, two ways. Number one, we want half our nut and seed intake to be the high omega-3 fat on nuts. We're talking about walnuts, hemp seeds, flax seeds, and chia seeds being half the intake of nuts and seeds. The other half can be pistachios, pecans, cashews, and other ones. Number two, we're not utilizing more for people who are overweight. We're moderately using nuts and seeds two ounces or less, except if you're an athlete or do need more calories and have more. But then we're monitoring the omega-3 index in the blood, the omega-3 index to make sure that you use an algae-based omega-3 fatty acid to make sure your omega-3 index is usually at least 5.5. Because the numerous studies show that now in the lower quintiles of omega-3 index, you not only have more risk of brain shrinkage and dementia and brain susceptibility to toxins like that can cause Parkinson's, but you also have reduced immune function, reduced ability to keep toxins out of the brain, and shorter lifespans with lower omega-3 indexes. So the question is, is it possible to have a mostly a plant-based diet with a high level of exposure to phytochemicals and still keep these toxins out of our body and still keep the omega-3 index in the most favorable range? And obviously, with no deficiencies present, make sure there's sufficient zinc, B12, D, K2, iodine, omega-3, and still have a diet rich in phytochemicals and antioxidants. And of course, it's protein adequate because it's not a rice-based diet and it's not a fruit-based diet, but it's a huge, we're doing, using a lot of different types of foods, going for a lot of nutritional variety, which makes this with nuts and seeds, which add more protein in beans, which then makes this diet protein adequate for a child, a toddler, or for an elderly person with lower protein bioavailability and digestibility. In other words, we're saying here that in middle ages, people are so efficient at digesting protein you can be more sloppy and people can get away without having much protein. But when you're a growing child or whether you're a person over the age of 80, you need to make sure you have protein adequacy, especially on a plant-based diet, to have plant protein adequacy. And some of the diets where people are doing okay in their middle ages would not do well as they age unless they have enough 
high protein plant foods that we're talking about here, like green vegetables, beans, and nuts and seeds. Now, I know there are certain foods in the book that you describe that require extra chewing, some that might require being steamed to make it easier to chew and digest too, like broccoli. I just wonder if you could comment a bit on that. And then I want to dig into specifically the sorts of deficiencies that we need to watch out for on a vegetarian or mostly plant-based diet. Good questions. Number one, the two foods that where the anti-cancer effects are tremendously magnified based on how well you chew them are the cruciferous family because they house the enzyme myrosinase in the cell wall. And the myrosinase enzyme gets broken open as you chew it. And the better you chew it, the more ITCs that are formed. And the ITCs are the most powerful anti-cancer nutrients in the dietary landscape. So if you're having kale or arugula or watercress or bok choy or, or broccoli, we want to have it, some of that raw in the salad, but some of it conservatively cooked so it's not overly cooked and, de- and the myrosinase enzyme is not deactivated. But nevertheless, we want to try to chew it to liquefy it in our mouth to break open every cell. If you swallow the salad kind of like with a lot of pieces and you just swallowed it whole, you're going to lose the vast majority of potential anti-cancer nutrients compared to a person that's mindfully chewing and trying to liquefy in their mouth as much as possible. And the other food that has the same effect are onions and scallions have that enzyme called alienase, A-L-L-I-I-N-A-S-E, alienase. Yeah, same in garlic. Garlic has allianes. But raw garlic is so strongly flavored that most people get most of their alanase from eating, eating onion. But if we cook it, it deactivates it. And people know, they know when they cut an onion, it forms sulfenic acid. It's the alienase enzyme that's forming the sulfenic acid and the organosulfide compounds that prevent against cancer. If you cut a cooked onion, you wouldn't cause any burning of your eyes or tearing. It's the cutting up the raw onion. The point is encouraging people to put it like a half an onion, cut up small or a, scall- a couple of scallions in their salads and chew them very well to fully activate those beneficial anti-cancer compounds, very powerful compounds. And when those compounds, by the way, mix in the mouth and you chew them well, mixing with the bacteria in the mouth and the bacteria in the gums and between the teeth, you produce more nitric oxide, which is also promotes longevity and lowers stress and dilation, vasodilatory effects and anti-inflammatory effects in blood vessels. So the body works at a highest degree of efficiencies when you're chewing these things well and eating them raw. And then when we cook them, like we're using cold blending. Like if I'm going to add, let's say, leeks and onions to a soup, I'll blend it cold in the blender, lay a little liquid in there, like a little soup liquid, and then I'll let the chemical reaction occur in the blender, break open that onion into a puree or the leek and puree the leek, and then pour it into the soup to cook. If I cook the onion first and then pureed it, it wouldn't form as many anti-cancer compounds. But the anti-cancer organosulfide compounds, they're resistant to heat once they're formed. But they're sensitive to being destroyed if you heat the vegetable up too much or cook it before you break it on the cell wall. So I might throw collard greens or kale into the blender and then make a green puree and then pour that into the soup to cook. Yeah, I do. And this may be one of the reasons. I mean, I'm Italian. I grew up with an Italian grandmother teaching me to cook in the kitchen. And she always said, you have to crush the garlic before you cut it even as just one of the things that they automatically did as a part of the culture. You just crush the piece with the knife, and then you would chop it up before you'd cook it. And so doing, by crushing it, you're actually doing that as well. So you're enabling this to form. Absolutely. You have to break those. So they're talking here about the two families, the allium family, which includes onion and garlic, and the cruciferous family that includes broccoli, cabbages, 
kale, collards, bok choy, and uh, Brussels sprouts, and all those arugula, watercress, and all those anti-cancer green vegetables. That's fantastic. Dr. William Lee came on this show. He's a New York Times bestselling author as well. He wrote a book called Eat to Beat Disease. And he spoke about the power of beets, but also having the same issue where to get their full power, you need to fully masticate them, chew them very, very well, or just go to even a beet juice to get that full NOS potential from that vegetable, which I thought was interesting. I didn't know it before. Learn something new every day. Yes. And we maximize the healing potential and elements of immune building when we have a diversity of foods in our diet a wide diversity of natural foods chewed very well. And that means a diet that contains a big salad every day. And also we want salad, soup, and cooked vegetables because there are some foods that we absorb and do better when they're in the cooked form, particularly mushrooms and beans are better absorbed and the nutrients are better absorbed cooked, whereas the greens and the onion are better off raw. You can have them cooked as well, but you still should have some raw. But I'm saying yes, and utilizing those foods cooked And beans and carrots are example of foods that can be eaten both raw and cooked, and you get benefits from having both types. That's fantastic. Now, before we dig into favorite supplements and the sorts of things that you recommend people check their levels of, especially if they're a vegetarian and dive into that whole subject, I would like to know your perspective on a couple of diets that might be fads, but which have gained a lot of traction and steam over the past few years. One of them is the Whole30 or keto-related diets, and another more recent one being the carnivore diet. So what would you have to say to somebody that's considering one of these perhaps extreme diets? Well, I'm saying that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that is not even in the field of a hypothesis anymore. We know for a fact that those people following those dietary protocols are dying at a younger age. So even though this might be some initial benefits for a person with diabetes control or glucose control on a keto diet, they're still going to result in too much increased risk of cancer and other problems that accelerate death. It's really foolish diets, but there are a lot of people who have bizarre belief systems, bizarre political views, and bizarre way of all types of crazy. But I don't think there's a strong popularity, even though there's an extreme people, some extremists who are advocating a carnivore diet I think that don't forget, we have a whole hundreds of thousands of nutritional scientists the world over. We have the growth of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, tens of thousands of physicians that use nutrition as a primary and lifestyle medicine as a primary mode of helping people get well. No nutritional scientists advocate those way, the carnivore diet or a high meat diet. All nutritional scientists know from the overwhelming amount of evidence from thousands of studies. And by the way, I've reviewed more than 30,000 studies on this subject And I put probably 2,000 of those references in my book, my most recent book, Eat for Life, has more than 2,000 references in it, updated references, modern references showing increased risk of premature death with higher amounts of animal protein in the diet in a dose-dependent relationship. And the keto diets, the low carbohydrate, trying to keep your carbohydrates low enough to form ketosis means you have to keep carbohydrates below 30%, usually below 20% of calories. And of course, those diets, as you move below 30% of carbohydrate in the diet, you see dramatic increases in early life death as well, both causes of death we're talking about. Those diets are not good for long-term people's long-term health. So I think it's not even a controversy anymore. It's just people are so indoctrinated into their belief systems and they want to do what they want to do when they look for any kind of person that's going to support them in these dangerous or bizarre way of thinking. And those are dietary belief systems. They're not really science-based nutritional programs because there's too much overwhelming science today to show that as a primate, 
we are dependent on eating an assortment of foods and plant colors to slow aging and maximize human lifespan. And there's not various avenues to be a healthy centenarian. If you want to live be the ages of between 90 and 110, and I'm saying the human lifespan should mostly fall between 95 and 105, should center around 100 years old. And if you want to have your full mental faculties past 95 to 100, and I'm even suggesting 97 to 107 would be achievable if people adopt healthier eating styles and didn't wait to earlier in life. If the only way you can achieve having a healthy mind and a healthy body at that age is having exposure to a large amount of plants and reducing animal product consumption, all the blue zones and all the long-lived centenarians are all people with higher plant intake. And we're seeing this as very well-studied information at this point. So when you're talking about getting to that ideal, being in the blue zone yourself, creating the blue zone in your home, I would just like to better understand what role some of these other, let's say, animal products like dairy, where they lay in the whole picture? Because I think some people will make the leap and say, okay, well, I'm most of the way to the plant-based, but I'm still consuming cheese and milk in my coffee and things like this. And what would you say to those individuals? First of all, I just wanted to make it clear that even though the blue zones around the world are eating healthier than Americans eat, and they generally live eight to 10 years longer, I don't use the blue zones as the representative of the gold standard of eating because they're just what people are eating culturally and what they grow in those areas. A nutritarian diet is much more advanced than a blue zone diet and much more designed to utilize the epidemiology, the control trials, the anti-cancer benefits of food and achieving more variety of organic food that these blue zones can't get. Sometimes they have a more limited food exposure. We can have a food exposure. We need microgreens and sprouts and berries. And we have all these abilities to do better than the blue zones can do. So we should have the expectation to live 20 years longer than the average American, not just 10 years longer than the average American. So I wanted to make that clear. And yes, I'm saying that most people think that red meat and processed meats are class 1A carcinogen by the World Health Organization. So there's definite more damage with red meats. By the way, there's more damage to the environment as far as global warming and pollution with red meats, including, you know, lamb and beef. So we're talking those things are more utilize the land, water, they're more polluting, more methane production. They're much more dangerous for us to eat red meat and processed meats. But then you have people wanting to eat eggs, chicken, poultry, and fish and dairy products, which are probably a little not as carcinogenic, but still in a category of negativity because we dump thousands of tons of plastic and other toxins in the oceans every hour. And there's so much toxicity in fish nowadays that most Americans have a plastic, have a credit card amount of microplastic in their body, which are hormone disruptors and also promote cancer. And you realize that take a woman today eating the same amount of calories with the same amount of exercise of a woman 30 years ago, and the woman today is 30 pounds heavier eating the same amount of calories because when you're full of toxins in your body, your body holds on to fat and holds on to fluid to dilute the toxicity of your exposure. So we're just exposed to so many toxins in our environment. And because dairy products do raise IGF-1 more than fish and chicken do, they in proportion to total calories consumed, because where they're designed, cow's milk is designed for the baby calf to rapidly grow. So I'm saying I'm not differentiating one animal product from another so much, a slice of white meat turkey, a piece of chicken, some yogurt or a piece of fish. I'm saying I'm lumping it all together in one category and say that those should be reduced to very low levels or eliminated. And whether you reduce it to low levels or eliminate it, 
is dependent on the individual. Some people, they're so addicted that if they don't eliminate it, they just keep craving this stuff and they want to make them overeat. They're better off becoming a vegan and not desire and losing their attraction for those foods. And a little bit keeps wanting them to eat more and they eat too much. And a person that's in a medical condition that might require the total elimination, just go strictly on plants, might help a person, let's say, reverse heart disease or recover from cancer better. But for most population studies, show that as the animal product consumption goes above 5%, you start to see the emergence of genetic-related diseases. And below 10%, you start to see definitely heart disease start to occur in various populations when they start to remove. But below 10% of calories from animal products, it's rare that a population living on natural foods sees a significant amount of people with heart disease or strokes if their diet is not salted. Of course, the Asian countries would use so much salt are a horse of a different color because they see a lot of salt-generated diseases like hemorrhagic strokes. And hemorrhagic strokes are a different animal because the lower cholesterol can increase the risk of hemorrhagic stroke. So having less animal products with such a high salt intake can lead to more hemorrhagic strokes because the atherosclerotic process from overeating animal products can cause more fat to be deposited on the interior and exterior wall of blood vessels, protecting them, thickening the, the wall so it doesn't break open under the effect of the weakening effect of eating high salt diets. So we're saying here, eat right, cut the salt out of your diet. If you use animal products, use only small amounts or a condiment, eat a diet rich in colorful plants, a huge variety of them, and learn more about nutritarian eating because we have the ability to live longer and healthier than ever before in human history if we take advantage of these findings from modern nutritional science. Wow. Well, Dr. Foreman, you've moved me closer to the decision to go full plant-based than I've ever been. I am someone who really loves my eggs. I gave up my milk a while ago, but still occasionally have cheese. And I just have to say, reading the book itself provides all the context I need to take the next leap. So I definitely appreciate that. But I also understand there are a few key nutrients that we need to be concerned about ensuring that we get enough of, including vitamin B12, getting the right balance of our omega-3s. So what do you recommend people take checkpoint on now and then? You mentioned the omega-3 index. We're presently actually doing a study comparing fish oil to algae oil using the omega-3 index. Love your thoughts there. As president of the Nutritional Research Foundation, we funded a study on 166 vegans who checked their omega-3 index and then used algae oils for those people who were very low. We gave them a normal dose of algae oil and rechecked them again in four months to see if the levels had come up and normalized. So we did that study like that already using algae oil, which showed the effectiveness of even relatively low doses to affect the omega-3 index. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, I know you say something so plainly in this book. I mean, I've been in the space of omega-3s for a long time, so I always really appreciate it when someone like yourself, a medical doctor especially, can make it clear that some individuals might have a harder time making EPA and DHA from plant sources like flax, chia, etc. And so you might be consuming a lot of these omega-3s in balance, following your recommendations, using these seed-based dressings that you've created in this book as well, and then still be out of whack. So it's still important to check your levels, maybe as part of an annual physical. What other nutrients do you advise people to check? Number one, I don't want people to take folic acid and vitamin A. Because folic acid is not the same as folate found in real vegetables. And you have a high intake. If your diet should give you a high amount of folate, not take synthetic folic acid. So that's the biggest thing that I'm worried about people do with supplements. But other than that, that in a plant-based diet, you don't absorb zinc as much either as you do from animal products. 
So it's important to take a little valuable, to take a little extra zinc in the diet. It's not just B12, vitamin D, K2, zinc, and iodine. And then we're talking about EPA and DHA. You can't monitor zinc and iodine that easily. So I don't recommend people take blood tests to check that. I just recommend they take the RDI if they're not eating any seaweed or seafoods to take a little extra iodine, 150 microgram is the RDI. And I'm talking about a little bit of extra zinc. You get some zinc through natural plants, but not as much. So I'm talking about 10 to 15 milligrams of zinc extra a day in your diet. And I'm also suggesting that most people on vegan diets do not have adequate omega-3 index. We found that I think it was 67% had omega-3 index below four, and above five is like more than 75% had levels below five. So we're talking here about, it's a very small amount of people that were able to manipulate their diet to get, and would have a sufficient genetics to convert the ALA into enough EPA and DHA to get the index high enough. My background and my entry into this field of natural healing came from my father's changing his diet from reading Dr. Shelton's books, who were written in 1950, was one of the founders of the natural hygiene movement. And the people who I recognized as leaders in that field, like Kiki Sidwa and Herbert Shelton and Virginia Vetrana, all these people hired who were my mentors, either got demented or had Parkinson's disease in later life because they didn't know about omega-3, monitoring omega-3. I'm saying the Achilles heel of a vegan diet more than anything else, even though most people think it's B12, but that's because they're aware of B12 and they're taking B12. But the real Achilles heel, what they're not aware of, is making sure that the omega-3 index is adequate. And because the omega-3 index is not going to accurately reflect what you took unless you have taken that substance for at least four months. So I'm suggesting take a reasonable amount of an algae-based omega-3 and then wait three or four months, and preferably wait four or five months, and then check the omega-3 index. And if your level is still below five, then take a little extra dose, take some more. If it's above 5.5, continue doing what you're doing, and then you could check a level a few years later. Once you established a normal level, if your level was not adequate on the dose you were taking, then take more. And then five months later, take another test to make sure your level's adequate. Once your level is adequate based on you know what you have to take to get an adequate level between like 5.5 and 8, then you don't have to keep checking every year. You could check your omega-3 index once every three to five years because you've already figured out what the dose for you is. Yeah, I agree. There's this next piece too, though, vitamin D3. I persistently tested low for a long time until I started routinely supplementing with a vitamin D3. So what do you recommend insofar as vitamin D3 is concerned? What levels do you want to see people at? Because when I look at, they're saying adequate is 30 deciliters per something like that. 30 to 50, yeah, in America. And this is the study, yeah. I think 30 to 50 is adequate, and I don't want people to supplement themselves over 50. If you are taking 2,000 a day of vitamin D and your level falls 27, 28, 29, I'd say stay there because some people, they probably don't need as much. You're probably 22 or 27 is enough, 28 is enough for you if you're already taking 2,000. But if your level falls below 25 and you're taking 2,000, then take an extra 1,000. But I don't think people should be taking five or 10,000 of D. I think you should titrate be taking one to 3,000. It's rare that a person would ever need more than 3,000 to get their level above 30. So there is some negative effect of potentially taking too much as well because it's a fat-soluble toxin, not like B12 where there's probably no danger of taking too much. You know what I mean? Yes, of course. Now with vitamin D, people need to also consider making sure that they're getting enough vitamin K. Now, if they're consuming green leafy vegetables or getting K1, but they're not necessarily getting K2, 
You mentioned vitamin K2. It's one of my favorite supplements because it helps your soft tissues remain free and clear of excess calcium, which is, I think, important. But if you're absorbing more calcium because you're consuming a lot of vitamin D and you don't have the K2 there to check it. Right. We don't recommend people take high-dose calcium at one time because it could cause calcifications. If they need extra calcium, like in a postmenopausal woman, low-dose food-based calcium with each meal, a little bit extra with each meal, not a lot at one time, with some K2. Now, the bodies can make some K2 from the K1 in the, with the bacteria in the gut, but the science has not advanced enough at this point to know if your own K2 production is optimized on, with just eating plants. So right now, we're recommending people take some extra K2 in their diet. And I'm saying that with um, B evidence, thinking that it's, it seems conservative and sensible thing to do at this point. There's no beneficial effects of K2 when we really can't assure we're getting enough unless we supplement. Do you have any thoughts on bacteria and the sorts of healthy bacteria that people might want to consume supplementarily, like probiotics out there? Frankly, for healthy people, I don't think it's necessary to take probiotics if they're eating a healthy diet and not having sweets and processed grains and white rice and sugar and honey and maple syrup and, and alcohol. And if they're eating a diet as healthy as I'm recommending, then I think that they're going to have a good bacterial balance in their gut because of the huge variety of plant fibers. But of course, first I'm advocating people make a radical change in what they're eating. They could actually decrease their need for certain supplements as they produce better bacteria and thicken the biofilm that cover the villi in the small intestines for better. Let's lower the glycemic excursion or glycemic low absorption from the meal because you have a thick coating of bacteria. And those foods I'm talking about, the raw foods, meaning the onions and the greens and the cooked foods, means the beans and the mushrooms, have the effect to have the right prebiotic and to build the right type of bacterial milieu and have the right postbiotic effects with the anti-inflammatory benefits. Lately, acromantia is all the rage. It seems like there's more and more research studies coming out specifically for that particular probiotic. There's even companies now offering a product like that out on the market, which because apparently acromantia and having a good healthy level of that in your gut is associated with healthier mucosal lining and lower weight in individuals, actually reducing their circumference, so to speak. So I'm going to keep an eye on that myself. I just wondered if you had specific thoughts. No, you might know I have a retreat here in San Diego. That's right. Fly in from all over the world and they stay here for maybe a few months. The minimum stays a month, but they stay usually two or three months. Each live retreat because people are food addicts. Some people have trouble doing this on their own. So by learning the recipes and doing it a long time and detoxifying and feeling great, they learn how they can replicate it. They can drop 50 pounds and then go home and do it six more successfully. So how long are your retreats? The retreat is open all year round. It's always going on. But people, what I'm saying, people are staying a couple of two to three months. Some people stay 30, 60 or 90 days. So every month new people come in, some people leave, and some people are staying here for multiple months. And they get rid of their diabetes, get their blood pressure. I'm de-prescribing, taking them off their medications as their blood pressure goes back to normal, as their blood cholesterol, their diabetes goes away, they resolve their heart disease, they get, their headaches go away, their psoriasis clears up, they get well, they get sent home, and they know and they learn how to live this way and how to really love doing it. And I'm mentioning that because when you make such a radical change, it seems radical, but your taste muscle changes and people really learn to enjoy it when they learn these really good recipes. And I think that it resolves the need for a certain type of, and then we can use supplements uh, judiciously and also intelligently, conservatively, to really like they're a combination. We're combining this excellent diet with the proper use of supplements so they don't have to overtake stuff, but they can really feel confident they're being the best version of themselves. 
Well, that's fantastic. I mean, supplements are there to supplement a healthy diet, but so few of us actually have that healthy diet. Exactly. You got to get the healthy diet down. I would love to be a fly on the wall or even come for that retreat. So perhaps one day I'll be able to do that and we can meet in person. Yes. It's great to be here because it's such a beautiful place to be too. And the food's fantastic. Wow. I believe it. So having read a few of the recipes, I will encourage everyone to pick up this book, Superimmunity rather, The Essential Nutrition Guide for Boosting Your Body's Defenses to Live Longer, Stronger, and Disease-Free. And your newest book, I'd like to invite you to come back on and talk specifically about that. Terrific. Yeah, we'll talk more about Eat for Life and go over this one more time in the future. It'd be really nice. Great talk. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you so much, Dr. Foreman, for joining me today. I just so appreciate your time. You're a wealth of knowledge. Thank you. Good luck, everybody. I will be sure to include links to where you can learn more about Dr. Joel Foreman and his books, including Super Immunity and Eat to Live, as well as his retreat with show notes. I'll also include a few more treats on orlonutrition.com. When you visit our podcast page there, you will see full transcripts, a couple of videos that he has performed as interviews before, and also some resources, including a recipe or two from the book. I encourage you to check that out. Now, I'll also remind you that everyone who listens is eligible for an extra 10% off your first order from orlonutrition.com. So if you're sold on needing more omega-3s, or if you want an immunity boost like that offered by Orlo, then you can go ahead and check out at cart, use the code NWC10 for nutrition without compromise to receive your extra 10% discount. Now they are selling a holiday bundle and that holiday bundle provides the immunity boost, spirulina with vitamin D, B12, and some other B vitamins, as well as one of the omega-3 products, whichever one was your choice, for an inborn discount of 27% off with free shipping. But if you buy it with NWC10 as your code, you get an extra 10% off. So that's as much as 37% off your order. If you have any questions about what we covered today or topics that you'd like to see featured on this show in the future, please reach out via social channels at Orlo Nutrition, or you can send me an email note to hello at orlonutrition.com. Now, as we close today's show, I hope that you'll raise a cup of your favorite beverage, coffee, tea, water, as I say my closing words. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either-or. 